We are spending another week in one of the greatest cities in the history of the world, Athens, with one of the most influential figures in the world, the Apostle Paul. So open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 22, Athens, part 2. little recap if you um, haven't been with us for the entire journey. Here's a picture of the map of the second missionary journey. Started over in the lower right. Jerusalem, the Apostle Paul went all the way up through um, his hometown and then Asia. And then, boom, ended up in Macedonia to the left. Philippi, upper left, Thessalonica, Berea. And then he got shagged out of there. Now he's in Athens waiting for his friends. He spent a few days there. You know, in my imagination, I kind of, sometimes I have funny images as I study the Bible here, and I just imagine Paul all alone in Athens. He had to take the tour. I mean, one of the greatest cities in the world. He had to walk around and see things. You know, we would do that today, right? So I kind of imagine him. He's probably, you know, got his, like, Zeus lightning bolt pen and his, like, Hermes winged socks, you know, and his Hercules shirt that's got the muscles on it. You know, I kind of imagine him, like, walking around and seeing the sights, and then, as he's walking around, he just his heart is just broken for this great city that's full of idols. And we'll find out today that it's like the end of the row, like the very end of the row, like his cotton candy's all gone, you know, in my imagination. He comes upon this one altar, this one uh, shrine, and it says, to an unknown God. And it's like, wait a minute, you get through all the thousands of the other ones and maybe they missed one? And that's going to be the very spot where he uses that to say, they haven't figured all this out yet. So in Athens, here's a picture of Athens. We've got a few pictures of Athens. You can put it up there today. And this is kind of a really cool uh, panorama of the city. And we can go on to the next picture. And then this is a picture of Athens back in the day. Glorious city. The Parthenon is up there on the hill. Um, and Athena was the great god of this city, the goddess. She built the city, according to Greek mythology. She built the city, and this is where a great court was. This is where uh, Socrates was. This is where Plato was. This is where, uh, we learned last week, philosophy and democracy were essentially born. But in Athens, the great goddess was Athena. She was the queen of the Parthenon. And we have a few pictures here of Athena. I believe we could put that up there. Now, when it comes to Athena, here's what's so interesting about this city. She, according to their legends, was born from the very head of Zeus, busted forth from his skull, their greatest god, Zeus, and therefore she represented the very mind of God. Plato taught that Athena's name was derived from a compound word, the deities mind the deity's mind therefore the areopagus where she looked over was where the gods themselves had stood trial like Ares, the god of war at one time had been on trial here according to their teaching what an amazing place paul was in they thought that the very mind of god the goddess who represented that was right there and the gods themselves could be put on trial here and this is where jesus christ his gospel would stand trial as well. Notice, you can't help but notice that she's got a snake with her all the time, and it just makes you think of Genesis, doesn't it? You will be like God, knowing good and evil, right? And there she is. Some things never change. So here we are in Athens. Athena is the goddess there. The Areopagus is where Paul is going to share his faith today. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into the word together. Father, we pray that as we revisit this city for the second week, 
Show us how to become bold witnesses of our faith and show us how the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, made its way into this polytheistic culture. Show us through the Apostle Paul's message what it means when people who serve many gods, thousands of gods, are told about the one true God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, here we are in verse 22. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. To the God, the God, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. All right, we're going to pause there and give the first point. You can jot this down if you want to take notes in your bulletin. Paul talked about the beginning. Paul talked about the beginning. He started with Genesis. He started with creation, and that's where he began sharing his faith with them. Where did the world start? Where did everything come from? That's where he began. Now notice that the, uh, the Apostle Paul goes right to monotheism. He says in verse 24, the God, the God, not gods, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. His lead-in was perfect. They can't really get mad at him. He's contradicting them. But they would go to this altar that said to the unknown God. They would offer up uh, sacrifices there. They, just in case they missed one, they would, they would worship at this altar so he's proclaiming to them the god they are already worshiping but they are worshiping him in a wrong manner it is true that no matter where people come from or what their upbringing is or where they live there is a heart an altar within them that cries out for worship to the one true god but they aren't sure how to do it or they're not even sure if they want to so where did the greek world come from well where did their gods come from according to their legends which you know 700 B.C., a poet, uh, Hesiod, said that the earth and sky and water emerged from the goddess Chaos and made it to produce titans and giants. The titans and giants made all their gods. And then their gods made people and things. So there was a fusion in their belief between the physical and the spiritual world. And the nature of the physical and the spiritual realm were kind of one. So Paul says one god made all, and they don't believe that. They believe that there are all sorts of gods. And so it's a very bleak picture they have of the origin of the universe because it was somewhat chaotic, and the beings that sprang into existence weren't always very moral. And so they had to appease all of these gods that came about from the beginning. Well, what do we believe about the beginning? You can jot this down. God is the creator of everything, so he needs nothing from us. God is the creator of everything, so he needs nothing from us. If there is one God who made everything, and there weren't bunches of gods making bits and pieces, then that one God is sovereign over all. And therefore, we don't have to bring him anything. He doesn't rely on us or anything for being, for existence. He just, he just is. Therefore, God 
is supreme. Lord of heaven and earth, he's called here. The God, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Paul just promoted the one true God over any God that needs anything in the temple, any God who needs anything from other gods. That's not the one true God. He is Lord of heaven. That would have included all of their deities. And Lord of earth. That's every kingdom, nation, tribe, and tongue. What a glorious God Paul is proclaiming to them. And there's implications for their worship. This God doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God is the creator of everything, so he needs nothing from us. You know in your Old Testament that God's glory did come into the temple of Solomon. You know that he does, he did apportion the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. So Paul's not saying, we don't serve our God, we don't, that's not what he's saying. But the nature in which the Greeks would serve their gods is if they were dependent on that service, right? And, and they needed things, and they needed this worship, and it was a very different warped form of how to relate to gods. In addition, they could craft their gods, right? The idols that had spiritual presence, and that's just not true with the one true God. So God is the creator of everything, so he needs nothing from us. Um, when it comes to living in a culture where there are many gods and they have an impact on your daily world, we don't really see that, but um, a couple in our small group, Dave and Sarah Lee, they lived that for a while, and uh, we've got some pictures here from, from their past um, in Taiwan, and what you see is, they say, you know, every, every day there would be some festivity to some god. There would be some god's birthday, or there would be some god's, you know, some seasonal thing for them, and, and you'd be... Um, showing honor and homage to these different gods. And often you leave things that the gods would need or expect of you. So it was very real to them during this time uh, on a daily basis that there would be something going on that tied into the spiritual realm and, and many, many gods. So that was just the way things were then. And the Apostle Paul came to that culture and he said, there's one true God. There's one true God. And he doesn't need anything from us. Uh, write this down. We are his creation, so we need everything from him. This is his reasoning. We are God's creation, so we need everything from him. It says the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man. He doesn't need that. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God gave you life and breath, and everything. Therefore, it's misguided to give that glory or credit to an idol. God's the one who gives us life and breath and everything. So we owe our lives to one God. This really elevates all humanity. This elevates all humanity as children of God, in a sense. We don't have to become heroes like those of old, who then take on divine status, or emperors who become divine. That's not the path toward uh, connection to God. Just because we were made in God's image, uh, we can take on his likeness and we can know him personally. We are God's creation. So we need everything um, from him. So where do you think everything came from? Have you embraced the reality that one God made you and everything you enjoy? And have you understood that because of that, He's over you and for you and wants you to know him 
forever, and that all glory should come to him for everything you enjoy. Have you embraced the truth about the beginning? When it comes to the beginning, this is a great way to share your faith. There's four worldview questions. We've learned this method of sharing your faith in the past and comes right from the Bible. In the past, we've called it origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Today, we're calling it beginning, middle, and end. But there's two ends for the middle. Okay. The beginning. You can ask someone, where do you think everything came from? Where did it all came from? And based on their response, you could have a good spiritual conversation about the beginning of all things. And it pleases God when we believe that he exists. That's where faith starts. We've got a uh, verse here we're going to put up on the screen. Um, and here's what it says from Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we have to believe that he exists and then he rewards those who seek him. Do you believe there is one true God, that he made everything in the beginning, and therefore he's over it all, and his purpose is why you're here? That's where faith begins. And that ties into a discussion about the middle. It says here in verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So when it comes to the middle, there's the beginning and then there's the middle. That's where we're in right now. What is the purpose of life and how are we supposed to live? We're going to talk about the meaning and morality of life right now. That's what the middle is all about. Meaning of life, you can jot this down. God made us to seek and find him. God made us to seek and find him. Verse 27, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. The meaning of life, God made us to seek and find him. You see how there's an inconsistency um, because a lot of people would say, well, you know, man was made and then we evolved and then, you know, we made up all these gods and then one day we were like well what if there was one god who was greater than all of them and so then people started thinking about one god that's actually backwards it says here god made one man that was adam from him all people came therefore the spiritual starting point the go square on the monopoly board right is man knew there was one god and so idolatry was a progressive deterioration of spiritual fellowship with God. The breaking up of God into thousands of pieces shows man's effort to try and fill the void when he walks away from the one true God. So they now have the Parthenon, thousands of gods it's taken to replace the one true God, and, and they still didn't have it all figured out because they left one altar open in case they missed one. 
So what we see here is not an evolution of spiritual understanding, but a deconstruction of the one true God that happened over time. And so in the middle, we have to figure out what are we here for, what is right, what is wrong, given the fact that one God made everything and us. For the Greeks, the path toward meaning and morality was philosophy, knowledge, and virtue that could harness the power of the gods and fortify civilization to give victory. You know, Nike was one of the Greek gods, right? So Athena always is holding out, Nike, the god of victory. And so you could have victory in your city, in your civilization, in your nation, if your gods were for you. We learned last week that there were four groups of people that Paul was talking to in this city. There was the religious folk, the Jews who knew the Old Testament and those who had converted to that. Then there were the pagans who believed everything about all the gods and tried to appease them. Then there were the Stoics, and we learned that those are kind of like the Vulcans, the, the rational, reasonable ones who are just determined to get life sorted out, and by their will and their schedule and their rules and their morality, they're going to hold it all together and keep everything in place, and, and, and it's not going to work in the end because they're trying to take the place of God. And then there were the Epicureans who were like looking at the Stoics like, losers, <laughs> let's go live a little, let's go have a little fun, YOLO, right? And they're, they're out to have as much pleasure as possible here while minimizing pain. And so Paul's talking to all four of these groups of people. All of them uh, had, the three had um, the gods in the background in some way, shape, or form. So their meaning would be drawn from their philosophy and their understanding of the spiritual realm. Their purpose, therefore, would be to line their lives up with their code and to live that out. That would be a virtuous life. Well, the meaning of life, according to the scriptures, God made us to seek him and find him. The Greeks were looking for the logos, the unifying principle of all knowledge and virtue and faith, to bring it all together and create one order that could bring prosperity and victory to the entire world. They had huge hopes of figuring this out. A giant quest to unify all of their understanding so that life made sense. But they never could quite get there. If you read in the beginning of the Gospel of John, he draws from a lot of that understanding. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's showing them that Jesus is the unifying great principle of thought and spirit and body and mind that they're looking for. So the meaning of life comes from God. And Paul quotes their own poets and he does this to show that there are contradictions in their own understanding of reality. So he um, quotes perhaps from Epimenides, which says that our existence is drawn from God's existence, and then Erratus, which says we are derived from him. So it says here in verse 27 that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him. He's actually not far from each one of us. And then he says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as one of your own poets have said. And then he quotes another one, for we are indeed his offspring. This is really cool that Paul is familiar. Paul's highly educated. And so he picked up on what their own writers had said. He was reading their writings. He was looking at their idols. He was trying to converse with them. And John Stott says this best. He commented that idolatry is an attempt to localize, confine, and even create God with our own hands. Localize, confine, and create God with our own hands. 
And he said that greatly minimizes both God and ourselves when we do that. That greatly minimizes both God and ourselves when we make God with our own two hands. Now, do you understand how he's showing that their own writers have contradicted this? In him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. So if we are um, the kind of being that draws our existence from God, how can we craft gods with our own hands? It's a contradiction. If we uh, are derived from him, then how can they, he come from us? He's showing that they're contradicting themselves. So we are meant for more than gods we can make out of wood, silver, gold, ivory. We can know the only true God. Maybe you've wondered, why am I here? What's my purpose? Is it just by chance? Is it just luck? Is it just to get through the daily grind and then one day go on and lights off? The Bible says that you were meant for more than that. You're here to find God, to know him, and to live with him forever. That's why God, a holy God, made you in his image. That elevates both him and you, because he's not a God you can try and make. Have you discovered the meaning of your life yet? Do you know that the Bible says to live is Christ and to die is gain? When you live for the one who died for you, every moment of your day serves a glorious purpose. The meaning of life, God made us to seek and find him, Paul says. And then morality, you could write this down, morality of life. God made us to be righteous through repentance. God made us to be righteous through repentance. So beginning, where did everything come from? You could have a great spiritual conversation with people if you just say, hey, where do you think everything came from? You don't have to get into evolution and the science of it all. There's plenty out there in our understanding of the beginning of the universe to know that the universe had a cause, and that cause had to be divine because it had to far surpass everything found in our nature. Therefore, it makes the most sense that God made everything. And Well, then what's the meaning? You could ask someone, why are you here? What's the purpose? Why do you do all those loads of laundry every day? Why do you take your kids here and there and everywhere? Why do, why do you keep going on? What's the purpose? And then morality. Where do you think right and wrong come from? That's a good spiritual conversation to have. Where do right and wrong come from? The Greeks had a big problem because all their gods were naughty. Really naughty. Fighting with each other, cutting each other's heads off, right? They, they got, their gods were like super, super dramatic, okay? And so they didn't know what right and wrong were from the gods because the gods weren't very moral. And so their behavior stemmed from fear of these gods who could do anything. We don't even know how they're going to react to our crops and our rivers and our sea and our city and our, we don't know. So there's a lot of fear-based paranoia, superstition, but when it comes to morality, we were made to be righteous through repentance. So what does the Apostle Paul say here? Um, he says here in verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's clearing up what they think God is like. 
And then it says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So we are to repent. That's the path to righteousness. It's You know, sometimes people are like, keep the Ten Commandments. Yeah, if you read your Bible, you know that if you touch Mount Sinai, you die. All right? The Ten Commandments were not ten steps to get up to God. The Ten Commandments were ten reasons you are never getting up there. All right? And so Jesus had to come down to die on the cross, to take away our sins. Then if we repent, if we turn from our life of immorality, we are made righteous. It's called imputed righteousness. We are made righteous through faith in the holy God. God deposits his righteousness into our heart, and we could never, ever earn that. Never, ever earn it. This is the way we become righteous. So Paul is telling them the times of ignorance God has overlooked, meaning what they thought about God, their ignorance has been overlooked, but they're guilty of thinking wrong things about God. And then their immorality They have to repent of all people everywhere. This is a universal truth. They have to repent. So therefore, because we're made by a holy God, we're under his moral law. Because we're made in his image, we must be holy to dwell with him forever. And it's through repentance that we are made righteous. So we have to turn. One good question you can ask somebody if you want to share your faith is, how do you define right and wrong? If we were just out for coffee at Starbucks, and I said, how do you define right and wrong? What would you say? Where do do morals come from? Sometimes I ask that to people, and they're like, well, you just know with your heart. And I'm like, you got a big problem on your hands, all right? Uh, Because a lot of people out there are pretty wicked, and they're just knowing with their heart, too. So if you get to make up your own morality, so does everybody else. Unless, unless... You take your morality and start going over to them and putting it on them, which everyone does. Everyone does, especially in traffic. Everyone has expectations of how other people should drive. And you impose that on other people. So there is really no world where people just have their own little personal morals and they never expect anyone else to abide by their code. Just watch the refs get one play wrong in the football game, and uh, your morality is going to go out of you onto that television screen, okay? So morality is always imposed on other people, but where does it come from? Where do right and wrong come from? Who's on your truth panel? You know, grandma, she was virtuous, Mother Teresa, I read a book by the Dalai Lama, of course I grew up watching Blue's Clues, you know, and and so your little truth panel has a bunch of things that taught you right and wrong, but what if, what if all of those things come from the holy nature of a God who is righteous, and therefore he wants you to be holy because he is holy. Well, now the standard is set so high, you can never get there alone. They were trying to pacify a few of their gods, so their crops come up okay. Paul was like, there's one God, and judgment day is coming. So have you realized this, that without the law of God, you think our world's bad now? Without the law of God, there would be total anarchy and chaos. False belief, false behavior, and it both offends God because it's sin. Well, Paul started with the beginning. God is the creator of everything. He needs nothing from us. God's creation 
We are God's creation. We need everything from him. Then he went to the middle, the two M's, meaning and morality. Meaning, we're here to seek him and find him because we're like him. Morality, he is the judge. We have to comply and repent. Beginning, middle, meaning, morality, and then he goes to the end. Jot this down. Paul talked about the end. This is a great way to share your faith. What do you, what do you think about right and wrong? Where does it come from? What's the purpose here? Where, where did everything come from? It, what happens one minute after you die? Any one of these four questions will get you a great spiritual conversation with somebody else. And everyone has to answer these four questions. It's not enough to say, oh, I don't know. Everyone has to have an answer for these questions. And so he goes on to the ending. Verse 31. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And after this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, it's not wrong or odd for Paul to talk about Jesus this way here. In this Greek culture, for him to say that God commanded all people everywhere to repent because he sent this messenger, Jesus, and this man, he calls him a man whom he has appointed and raised him from the dead, they would have automatically assumed he was divine, right? A divine messenger. So Paul didn't have to be like, let's get into the deity of Christ a little bit here, right? They would have already assumed if a messenger came from God, he was divine, he's from the spiritual realm. So Paul didn't have to cover that. It would have been plain as day that Paul is saying this one God sent one messenger, one mediator into the world, and all judgment flows through him. It would have been crystal clear. And imagine all the, all the gods of the entire city. Imagine, like, imagine all of them, if they truly were real, looking up at what Paul's saying at the same time and being like, he just took away all of our power. All of it. He just took away all of our power, all of it. Imagine the people in this great room, the wisest of their day. They've heard it all. And imagine the crisis of faith they were in. Can you put yourself in their shoes? He's saying, he's saying everything we've built this city on is wrong. What a moment. What a moment. What if it's true? What if there is only one God? What if he has fixed the day on which he's going to judge the world? What if there is one mediator and God raised him from the dead? Verse 32. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. I'll let you guys over here be that crowd. So just let out a good laugh. Go ahead. Okay. I know what I'm sharing is a lot to take in. Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, one of their own, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's talk about the end. Their view of the afterlife, generally speaking, according to their own writings, their view of the afterlife didn't include a resurrection or much hope of eternal joy. Upon death, according to their legends, their spirits would be carried through the underworld by the hounds of Hades to a three-headed watchdog 
And I've got a picture of that watchdog. Imagine after you die, if you've got this waiting for you. This is the Hound of Hades. This is what you see the moment after you die. That hound must be appeased if you even want to get to your resting place in eternity. So you have to make sure you bring honey cakes. (laughs) Write this down. Because even afterlife dogs need a treat. See, you're laughing at our beliefs, but let's face it, your beliefs are kind of comical too. Remember the honey cakes for the watchdog. (laughs) After you gave the dogs the treat, you would cross five rivers, including the sticks, and then face a tribunal of four gods. Hades was the chief god of the underworld. He was, of course, Zeus's older brother. Most people would earn a neutral part of the underworld. A few, a few heroes might make their way to the Elysian fields of paradise. And the worst of the worst would be sent to the lowest hell. Homer said Hades was the most hated by the mortals of all the gods. God of the underworld. Tribunal of four gods decides, and you and I, you know what? We're probably just going to have blah. We're in the underworld, forever's going to be bland, but at least we're not in the lowest underworld, and, eh, you know, the heavenly fields, come on, let's face it, we're not anything special, right? That was their bleak view of what happens one minute after you die, according to their legends. So write this down, we will die and be judged by God. We will die and be judged by God. They kind of agreed with that, but one God is greater than all gods, and he would handle all judgment by his messenger, Jesus. They didn't agree with that. Now they've got to make the God of the underworld mad if they start believing the Apostle Paul. That is a no-no. Are you prepared for one minute after you die? What are you trusting to secure your place in paradise forever? It's kind of funny, you know, to think the honey cakes for the dogs, right? But what are you trusting? What is your plan for one minute after you die? A lot of people don't have a plan. They think they're just going to do their best and that's going to be acceptable. But they're wrong. We will die and be judged by God. Are you prepared for the moment you stand before a holy God and all of your deeds are weighed and your book is open? Write this down. Jesus died and rose again in triumph. Jesus died and rose again in triumph. Okay, now you folks over here, the peanut gallery, let out like a a gasp and a mock. Like, go ahead, just give me one of those. All right. Because I just suggested that somebody came back from the dead and, and didn't die again. And you've heard some things, okay? When it comes to their beliefs, death, of course, was another god. Death was a god. And um, nobody defeated him, okay? Nobody. Well, there was this one guy, Sisyphus. He was a mortal king. And when death came to claim his life, he tricked death and chained him up. This created a big problem for the gods because no one was dying anymore because Sisyphus chained up God. Ares was particularly upset because no one was dying in his wars. So the gods decided this was a terrible thing, and they went and they freed the god of death, and they punished Sisyphus so terribly he was thrown in the lowest hell, and he was sentenced for all of eternity to roll an enchanted boulder all the way up a mountain, and as soon as he got to the top, it would roll all the way back down, and he would have to start all over. We've got a picture of that. So... Should we defeat death? Well, we've kind of heard about that one. 
Can we defeat death? Well, very few people have tried. And look what happened to this guy for even attempting it. They were aware of these beliefs of the afterworld and the underworld. So the thought that someone rose again never to die and conquered death was like, we shouldn't even be trying that. That's why probably they mocked him. But we know what happened, right? Our God rolled the stone away. Our God rolled the stone away. And it is finished. It is finished. What a better story than poor Sisyphus. Jesus died and rose again in triumph. They scoffed at that. Nobody defeated death, and why should we even try? What's your hope of defeating death? What's your hope of defeating death? Paul talked about the end. We will die and be judged by God. Jesus died and rose again in triumph. God, verse 31, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked, but others believed. Write this down finally. Only through hope, uh, only through faith in Jesus Christ can we be raised to eternal life. Some believed, some mocked. Only through faith in Jesus can we be raised to eternal life. Paul went into Athens and told them all their gods were wrong. He said, repent of your ignorance because judgment is coming and Jesus is alive and he holds the keys to your fate in his hands. That's the message I have for you today. I don't know what you came in here believing about the beginning, but there's one God who made you for his glory. He made everything around you. I don't know what you believe about the middle, but you're meant for more than laundry and a commute and a paycheck and maybe a comfortable retirement. You're meant for more than that. You're meant to find God and to know him forever. I don't know what moral code you are operating by, but God's standards are holiness, and we can only be made holy through repentance. And I don't know what you think about the end, but Jesus Christ rose from the grave, defeated death, and he rules heaven right now. He will be the one who decides where you go forever. And Jesus said, either you're for me or you're against me. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious message Paul preached and what a glorious city. I can just picture all of those thousands of idols as if they were listening with one ear to what this traveler had to say. The hundreds of years that went into producing this city and all of its temples, all of the gold, all of the ivory, all of the philosophy, Lord, was worthless without the one true God. And Paul gave them an opportunity to repent and believe the good news that death has been defeated and they have nothing to fear in the spiritual realm. Lord, folks here today, I don't know what their lot in life is. I don't know if they've traveled a lot, seen glorious things, if they've had a hard road. But you made them to know you. You created them in your image. And they will live forever somewhere. And I pray that today they would be struck with the reality that they will stand before you in judgment soon. Lord, it's not enough to be a good person. The Bible is clear. Good people don't go to heaven. Religious people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. I just pray that they would examine their own hearts and wonder if they are saved by the one who defeated death, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that right now there would be some here in this room who say in their hearts, Jesus, save me. Jesus, wash away all my sins. I believe. I believe you rose again. I believe you defeated death and conquered the grave. 
Jesus, take me to paradise one day forever. I trust you. And Lord, remind us that you are the one true God. We can trust you no matter what we're going through. We give you all the glory in life and in death, and we believe the good news. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's stand and sing.